Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. So I invite you to join me in welcoming up Dr. Mike McNichols. <laughs> Grab my binder here. Mike, can we pray for you? You bet. Awesome. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you that you uh, are such an amazing God, and that you are God who speaks, who has revealed yourself to us. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word now, and uh, that it would come alive for us, that you would give us open hearts, open minds, uh, open ears to receive all that you would say to us today. And we pray for Mike, that you would just put your blessing, that you put your spirit afresh upon him, and speak through him now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you again. And when Michael said he wanted some theological firepower, I said, so why did you call me? (laughs) I actually went back and looked in my files, and I realized I was here speaking on Trinity Sunday a year ago. And I think what's happening is that he's going to keep asking me to do this (laughs) until I get it right. So... um, See you next year, I guess. <laughs> so um, I, I just want to say, M- Michael said earlier, yeah, people will come trickling in. This is Orange County, uh, and we are kind of fluid on time. I was thinking back, though, we mentioned in our prayers of Venezuela, I used to go periodically to do some things with some churches down there, <clears throat> and I was asked to preach one Sunday. They usually give you 30 minutes notice on preaching. <laughs> and we met in this upstairs, really funky upstairs building, and uh, the entry door was there and the bathroom door was there and there was a steady stream of people in both doors it was you can imagine the dynamic of that particular experience Um, and this door was a real flimsy one just better imagined than described well as Michael pointed out today is indeed Trinity Sunday, it's a, it's a day for us to reflect once again on the mystery that is the oneness and the threeness of God. It's a real challenge for someone like me, Michael, anybody, Greg has had his turn, um, <clears throat> uh, to prepare a message on a topic of this type. And it's certainly a challenge for all of us to gather together for 20 or 30 minutes to, to reflect on this incredibly important thing. And it's, it's a topic that Christians have puzzled over for 2,000 years. So it's no wonder we do it each year to try to get it right. And it's good that we do that. It's good that we, that we rehearse this story every single year because it's a reminder that we aren't ever going to get it quite right. As the, the church father Augustine was once warned, once you think you understand the Trinity you know you are wrong. (laughs) Well, the idea of Trinity didn't just emerge out of a kind of scholarly backroom discussion or or out of some kind of theological abstraction. It it really came out of a response that people had to, to the New Testament testimony about what God had done in and through Jesus Christ and the releasing of the Holy Spirit and about how people were actually experiencing the way that God was enacting his mission in the world. And even when we look back through kind of Trinitarian lenses, so to speak, we see the dynamic of, of threeness 
in God's creative work on behalf of the world. Right there in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And the prologue of John's gospel echoes this kind of creative dynamic of God's creating, God's spirit hovering, God's word proceeding. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. So Jesus' earliest followers experienced him as, first of all, a fully human person. But they soon saw something more in him. He, he was not simply a messenger commissioned or, or sanctioned by God. He was the embodiment of God himself, a man in whom the fullness of God dwelt, one who was in the form of God but never exploited his equality with God. Now, for some, claims like those were sheer blasphemy. And for the disciples, they were all sign and wonder. They were signed because they, they pointed to something beyond themselves. And they were wonder because they caused people to marvel at the incredible mystery of God. Now, in a conversation once that Jesus was having with his disciples, one of the disciples, Philip, made a request to Jesus that certainly a lot of other people have wanted to make. <clears throat> he said to him, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Well, if this God is as real as people claim, as you claim, Jesus, then why can't we just catch a glimpse of him? Just let us see what this God looks like. Now, I know what you're all thinking right now. I can tell by the looks on your faces because it's like that scene in Ghostbusters, right? <laughs> it's where Ray and Winston are driving through New York and there's ghosts everywhere and they begin wondering about what's going on and Winston says, Ray... Do you believe in God? And Ray, through Dan Aykroyd, <clears throat> very abruptly responds, never met him. Never met him. Well, of course Ray had never met God. As the Gospel of John declares, no one has ever seen God. Now, given the circumstances, it, it really wasn't unreasonable for Philip to ask this question of Jesus. After all, Jesus was always talking about God, referring to God as his father and suggesting things about God that made some people amazingly hopeful and others absolutely furious. And so Philip, perhaps speaking on behalf of the others, wanted to cut down to the chase. Just show us this heavenly father. Let us see who it is you're talking about. It's not as if these, these young Jewish men had no concept of God at all. It was that the intimacy with which Jesus spoke suggested that God was closer to them than they'd ever imagined. And so Jesus throws Philip a sucker punch. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
No one has ever seen God, we're told. But it is the only son, the one close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Now, I think it's good to pause here and kind of reflect on that word son, uh, the designation that is applied to Jesus as the son of God. Sometimes the idea of such a son is kind of reduced down to a caricature, kind of the equivalent of, of an actual father-son relationship where Jesus is just God's little boy. Uh, we're not sure who the mom is on this image. <clears throat> um, and, and ultimately, he is sacrificed for the sake of the world. That's kind of the, 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 what that gets reduced down to at t- from time to time. But to speak of Jesus as the son is to speak of him as the only one that comes from God enjoying a relationship of intimacy and love that can only roughly be compared to the best of human familial relationships. The, the prologue to John's gospel describes the glory of the word made flesh as of a father's only son, sort of like a father's only son. And in another sense, son suggests that that Jesus is the representative of all that Israel was meant to be. Because in scripture, Israel is referred to as the son of God a number of times, God's son. But Israel did not fulfill what God intended. Jesus is the son who perfectly enacts God's intentions for the world. Jesus is the fully obedient son of God, sent by God, and embodying all that Israel was meant to be. And this one true God's only begotten son, the word made flesh who has lived among us, shares with God the Father an eternal relationship of love. Have you ever thought about that word, relationship? Um, you probably have. <clears throat> we often think of relationship as a, just a description of how people interact together. And so relationships can be good or bad. They can be intimate or cold. They can be friendly or hostile. But have you ever thought about relationship as being a thing in itself? Um, you've probably experienced this if you've ever approached a couple of people you know. Maybe you see them in a, in a coffee shop. They're in deep conversation, but it's a conversation that you are not a part of. Um, we found that this morning. Uh, Dennis and I were having a conversation in the back, and, and Greg walked up and said hello, and and he backed off. He said, carry on. You know, <laughs> there's a, something happening here that I'm not with you on. I'm not dancing with you guys. Go for it. But you know what that's like. You know, if you're in that, that hypothetical coffee shop, you, maybe you approach these people. And, and when you do, you sort of hit a wall of resistance. And uh, there's something happening there that has not included you. There's something happening that predates your arrival. And, uh, and there's a relationship that has almost a, a tangible presence. You can sort of imagine as you approach these people that the relationship they share suddenly takes on a, a physical form and looks up at you and says, hey, why don't you join us? Or maybe, hold on, this is not about you. Go about your business. Uh, you've probably had that experience. So sometimes it feels like there's something real there that you bump into. When we speak of God the Father and Jesus the Son in relationship, we are actually speaking of a third reality that not only binds them together, but also participates with them. This relationship of dynamic love, as one theologian observes, is the reality of the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit is the presence of God's love granted to us and granted to the world. As, as we heard the Apostle Paul say this morning, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one true God dynamically related in the threeness of love. Now, throughout John's gospel, we're struck by Jesus' words about his relationship to God the Father. He, he speaks of love shared between them and a oneness that they enjoy together, a oneness that Jesus prays will be evident in the relationships of his followers with one another. And, and oddly and tragically, this oneness will not only be characterized by love, it will also be char- characterized by persecution, suffering, and death. Jesus prepared his disciples for this when he said to them, I've said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so, they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. The oneness of God expressed in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit poured out for us, and also demonstrated in suffering and death. How do we even begin to think about these kinds of things? As uh, Michael observed today's Father's Day, um, it's kind of a unique one for me. This is the first Father's Day in my life that my father is not here. Uh, My dad died on Wednesday of Holy Week just this last April. He was 95 years old, and uh, he had been active and present right up to the few weeks before he passed away. He still drove his Honda Accord V6, I might add. I said, Dad, why didn't you just get a four-cylinder? He says, I like a fast car. (laughs) He uh, visited my mom, who's in a care facility. He uh, went to church, sang in the choir, very active guy right up until the end. And uh, I stood with my family around his bedside uh, as he left us. He wasn't conscious anymore, and the medical staff uh, assured us that they had taken care of things and that he wasn't feeling any pain. And yet, I I watched as his body fought to to cling to life, uh, rebelling, kind of, against the onset of death. You hear about suffering the pangs of death, and that's what I saw his body doing. And I stood by him with my family members, and I I placed my hand on his hand, a very familiar hand, a hand I had held as a child, hands that had held me as a baby. And it was a profound experience. Uh, I I loved my father, and I know that he loved me. And here we were, his body suffering in the flesh, and my body suffering in grief. I did not suffer in the same way that he did. But our shared suffering of dying and grief was a suffering that was grounded in love. When we think of Jesus' suffering and death, we might ask, what does the Trinity have to do with that? Such a tragic, awful event. 
Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and we have to wonder, is that what's happening here? Did, did God simply forsake Jesus, turn away from him as he died, dispassionate, and yet happy that everything in the world was going to get fixed in some way? Well, th- those words were certainly the cry of Israel. After all, it's a direct quote from Psalm 22. But there was indeed a kind of forsakenness because in dying, a person seems to be forsaken by all. There may be family and friends present, but dying is truly a solitary act. Everyone in the end dies on their own. And in a very important way, Jesus, who died for all, died alone. And in Jesus dying, the Father suffers as well. The Father does not die, but the Father suffers eternal grief at the death of the Son. In their oneness of relationship, the Father and Son are bound together in suffering, and that suffering is grounded in eternal love, a love that is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The oneness of God characterized by the dynamic threeness of love, a love that is no stranger to suffering and death. It's really a lot to take in, isn't it? Uh, As I said earlier, Christian thinkers have been trying to get their minds around this for 2,000 years. And as one of the early church fathers said, no sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. So what do we do with it all? Do we fix ourselves on particular images or analogies or or theological constructs so that we can claim we've got the Trinity right? Is having a a precise grasp of, of the Trinity as a doctrine the end goal to all of this? Or having engaged with the mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do we then stand back in awe and wonder and worship? You know, our affirmation of the Trinity may be more of an act of worship than it is a doctrinal absolute. There is indeed a doctrine of the Trinity, and, that, and the church has embraced that for a very long time, and it's important. But if we get too bound up with analogies and images and even propositions that we think lock us into a precise doctrine of the Trinity that just seals the deal and closes off the conversation, then we risk losing the posture of worship of the Father, through Jesus the Son, by the power of the Spirit. As one theologian claims, worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. You see, this has important implications for how we view what we call worship. In our culture, our Christian culture, we we tend to think of singing as worship, and, and certainly singing is an aspect of how we express our worship to God. But it isn't limited to that. I think we know that. As Eugene Peterson says, singing isn't worship, but worshipers sing. <laughs> now, some might view the, uh, the idea of worship with fear and trembling, seeing themselves as unworthy, unclean sinners who stand shaking before an angry God who would be just absolutely happy to annihilate them except for Jesus. 
But that isn't how we are to come to God in worship. We come before God in a posture of assurance of his acceptance and love for us. We come before God, first of all, as ones beloved and redeemed, summoned, called by the Father, participating in the generous eternal love that he shares with the Son, and that love poured out to us by the Spirit. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, because you are children, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Worship is a posture that we take before the triune God, a posture that includes our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in that posture, we sing and we pray, we listen, we welcome, we serve, and we delight in the love of the Father, shared and expressed in and through the only Son, and poured out to us by the Spirit. Uh, in closing this morning, I, I, I recognize that um, times like this, Father's Day, uh, other holidays like that, uh, create different emotions for different people. Uh, for some, it's just fun and joyous, and others, it's, there's pain and memories and loss and grief. It's a real mixed bag. Um, and I want to say I take great comfort in recognizing that in our suffering, oftentimes uh, something that we see as an aberration to normal life, that in our suffering, we do not enter that suffering alone, but that the triune God enters in with us. And it is a shared suffering that's not grounded in forsakenness, but a shared suffering that's grounded in love. Let's stop it. Allow me to pray for you. God, we stand before you now as ones with hands empty, recognizing that we have been invited to participate in the oneness and love of you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for those here today who may be in a place of pain and suffering, I ask that by your Spirit poured out into our hearts that you would bring them this morning peace and a sense of your embrace and your love and your participation in the place they are in their lives today, that they will know that they are not forsaken but are beloved by you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, brother. In light of what Mike uh, just shared, I'm going to call an audible, Katie. (laughs) And I just feel like it's appropriate that we just take a moment just to respond with worship. And so whether sitting, standing, kneeling, whatever you feel led to do, how about we sing the doxology again just a couple times. Just turn our hearts to the Lord just in a posture of worship now. Reflecting on the glory of the Trinity, the triune God. Let's sing together. Praise God from blessings
色。